It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Welcome back to the Omicron variant of the Love Tennis podcast, where at long last we have all got covid Yes, uh, I apologise. Well, I'm going to apologise for this podcast being late and for me being a little bit growly. Uh, The reality is it's George's fault because he gave me COVID. So um, that's that's why I'm spending Christmas on my own. No, I can't possibly blame him for that. I can only blame the unvaccinated. Um, I'm James Gray, as always. He's George Belcher and the other man in the room is Calvin Beton. Last week, you will have enjoyed us all being in the same room subsequently two out of three of us have got covid so take from that what you will um i'm fine i should say i'm probably the most symptomatic but uh i it's basically i am triple jabbed and therefore i'm doing absolutely fine thank you for all the people on twitter who were expressing their concern for my well-being um it's about the same number as who are sort of expressing the hope that i might die from it so you know 50 50 um let's get on with the podcast and stop fanning around with my health uh thank you to very much to everyone who voted in our awards over the last 10 days uh, it's always fun doing that podcast and arguing about who we think should be nominated um we've got a few results uh, i'll run you through them relatively quickly uh, maybe george calvin you can you can note in your head which ones you'd like to bring up and, and surprised you. Uh, no surprise that Novak Djokovic won our ATP Player of the Year. Similarly, Ash Barty winning WCA Player of the Year. Um, young players, Alcaraz and Raducanu. Again, I don't think anyone took too much uh, issue with that. Gilles Savara, Coach of the Year for his work with Daniil Medvedev, just closing out Facundo Lagones. Um, the Russian Federation, Team of the Year. I hate it, but it's true. Best match of the year, I think we'll come back to and have a longer chat. Djokovic, Nadal, the French Open semi-final, winning it. But there were so many suggestions and some really good ones. Um, US Open, the slam of the year. Indian Wells, the non-slam of the year, although that was a very close field. Uh, Dominic Team, the disappointment of the year. I think we'd probably all agree with that. Um, although not through his own fault, clearly. Yeah, he didn't choose to get injured. Uh, and then WTA disappointment of the year was Bianca Andreescu, who you could argue for similar reasons. Um, George, which of those results from the people, uh, we, we we never know what people actually think until we ask them, which surprised you the most? Oh, surprise. I think, to be honest, 
the majority went with what I initially put when I sent you the nominations over. I think mostly, yes. Mostly. So, which ones disagreed? I can't remember now. I mean, I thought we made quite a, between us. We all made quite a compelling argument for Krachikiba last week. Yeah. Uh, but clearly, not swayed the public. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not but, surprised. Like, it, you know, she's obviously had a great year, but it it, it was always good. you're always going to be hard to argue against the world number one. Um, so I, I can kind of get behind that. Um, the match of the year, as I said, was always is always controversial. Um, I'm just going to read out a couple of the other ones that people put up. The Dimitrov Zverev at the Paris Masters. Alcaraz Tsitsipas was a, a heck of a match. And actually, Fernandez Raducanu at the US Open final. And Calvin, I know we've talked about that match kind of endlessly. And I, I know we think the WTA doesn't have the same variety and rhythm in it, perhaps, that, that the men's game does. But actually, when you, I was sort of starting to look back at that US Open final, it was a pretty dramatic match. There were some great moments and some pretty brilliant rallies. Yeah, it was a quite unique match, wasn't it? Because we had the situation where both girls were relatively unknown. They'd absolutely never been in a situation where they're in a Grand Slam final. So you didn't know how they were going to respond. Like Emma, to be fair, at that stage, still the last time she'd lost a set, she ended up having some issues, obviously, at Wimbledon. So you didn't know if anything was going to bring in any, any nerves. It would be the latter stages of a slam. And then she was playing well. And then Fernandez didn't... I think Fernandez actually started quite well as far as I can remember, but then really dropped off. And Emma won won the first set and got a bit of a lead in the second set. And then Fernandez came back pretty strong, I think, towards the end. And yeah, it was a good match. So the scoreline, I think, was it four and four in the end? Um, That's a great question. I have no idea, but yeah, sure, let's say that. I think it was something like that. Yeah, and it, but it sent a lot closer than that, just because of all the unknowns. How are they going to respond? And mm. and also because Emma had won all her matches in straight sets, whereas uh, Fernandez had had sort of been in these battles and you could never write her out. She'd saved a few match points in the tournament and that kind of thing. So, yeah, there were a lot of unknowns in it. And so it was so unique in that situation. I'm not sure we'll, not sure we'll get that situ- type of situation again anytime soon where you've got two girls so young playing each other in, in a slam final. Certainly seems unlikely, um, unless, unless there are some really good 12-year-olds kicking around that we don't know about. Uh, the well, other no, one, no, WTA, WTA tour, literally anybody could play in a slam final. So. <laughs> and that's why we love it, famously. Um, George, the other one that was mentioned, and obviously kind of we've talked a lot about Carlos Alcaraz, we've talked a lot about Stefano Tsitsipas as well, but the five-setter, uh, the third round of the US Open, uh, I've got the score in front of me, 6-3, 4-6, 7-6, love 6, 7-6. I mean, one of the swingiest matches you could wish to watch um, what are your memories of that one? Uh, to be honest, my, one of my big memories was just thinking, wow, Alcaraz is actually amazing. I mean, like, I knew it was good, but the level he brought really early in that match was probably the highest level I've actually seen in player match at. Like, first set and a half, two sets. I think he actually even lost the second set, but he was playing, he was playing amazingly, even though he ma- somehow managed to lose that set. Um, the quality was just ferocious, the way he was dominating the court, living for the big moment. Um, you know, it, it felt like a kind of superstar being born, um, even though we were all very aware of him beforehand. It's always quite memorable, that moment where they have that first big slam win. Mm. Um, and it's come a lot sooner for him than, it, you know, for many of the other youngsters, really. Um, if you think, I'm thinking like Zverev here, it took him a while to have a, a big slam win, yeah. arguably 
not as significant as that, perhaps. I mean, and what's interesting about Zverev, if because actually to, it's not a bad comparison with the two, because what sets Alcaraz apart, at least for me, from other young players breaking through, is he's physically so developed. Like he's a really big guy. He's pretty muscular. He his first ever tour tournament in Brazil just before lockdown in um, yeah. Jan- February 2020. He beat Albert Ramos Vinolas at like two in the morning in a three-hour match on a slow, slow clay court. Like it was insanely physical, that match. And he was like 16. Um, and so I guess the, there's a similarity was there of there. When he came through, obviously his great advantage was that he's an absolute monster. Like he was six foot loads. Um, and I, I thought it was interesting. I was looking back at Tsitsipas' quotes after the Alcaraz match. And his first question, you know, the moderator just softballs one up and says, what do you think? And he just went, I've never seen someone hit the ball so hard. It took time to adjust, which is like, that's what the rookie is supposed to say. That's what the teenager is supposed to come into press and say, oh, I just didn't know how to deal with someone hitting the ball that hard. I mean, it's just, it's wild. And it makes me excited for what he can do next year. For what it's worth, though, I thought Mauricio's bat was a better match because it had that extra element of <laughs> kind of shithousery, if you like. Yeah, I mean, yeah you need needle. always takes it higher. Um, but it was still brilliant. So we need Carlitos to fall out with someone on tour, really. Like that's the <laughs> next stage of his development is like a real grudge match. I think that's quite important for this stage of the tour because I think we've got what we've got now is a group of very, very good players who probably aren't at the height of Djokovic, Nadal and Federer in their peak. Um, so it'll be interesting to see kind of the numbers they get to. But without the records, you need the kind of grudge matches and the, and I think, a bit more bite amongst them. And someone like Medvedev is going to be great for this because he just runs around. You know, he, he argues with the fans more than the other players, really. Yeah. At the minute. But, you know, he, he's someone who's going to be quite good in terms of selling the game from that perspective. But a, a few more rivalries that could get a little bit heated, um, remove the kind of sanitization of the sport, I think would be a, a positive for tennis. I'm sure Yannick Sinner will bring that too. And, it, you know, there's huge amounts of personality and rivalry there. You know, I had a really weird experience the other day. I don't know if people have seen the Lavazza advert that's going around at the moment. And it's just, it's people I've never heard of just drinking coffee and making coffee. And then for about a second and a half, Yannick Sinner's in it. Like, and obviously in Italy, where Lavazza is from, that's quite a big deal. But this was an advert on UK TV and it was just like, oh, I know who that is. But like 95% of people watching this advert on Channel 4 at 9.30 on a Friday will have no idea who he is. Who do you literally not know any of the other people in it? Like, I haven't I, seen it. So. I don't know. I, I, I could be wrong. And please do let me know if I am. I'm, I'm not very good on celeb <laughs> spotting. But my impression was like watching it. I was like, okay, this is an advert, just normal people drinking posh coffee. And then I was like, huh? Who's that spotted? That is spotty teenager Yannick Sinner. I can't call him a teenager anymore. He's 20. But. Is he spotty or just freckly? He's just freckly. Mm, yeah, but, you know, spotty so much more than a facial thing. It's a it's a mindset. It's a mindset. <laughs> uh, let's move on before I somehow libel Yannick Sinner's skincare sponsorship deal. Um, we had some actual tennis to talk about this week because, um, <laughs> you know, the tennis offseason lasted all of 10 days uh, and then we were back with the grandiosely named Mubadala World Tennis Championship. Um, it is, for the record, own, in no way a world tennis championship other than it features players from a few different parts of the world. Uh, it's obviously an exhibition tournament. I think the players, from what I can see, take it quite seriously. It happened in the world. Yeah, also. OK. 
Well, welcome to the welcome to the World Love Tennis Podcast. Then, um, <laughs> obviously, some significant results: uh, Andy Murray beating Dan Evans, and then Rafael Nadal. Um, with all the caveats in the world, but nevertheless, two matches won in two days for Andy Murray. I mean, he got beaten fairly comfortably by Rublev in the final. Calvin, we're, we're kind of waiting for Andy to make this pretty significant step forward. You know, having arguably been at a singular level for a significant period of time. Does does this feel significant or is this just an exhibition preseason tournament and we should think nothing of it? No, I think it I think the Nadal match brings it somewhat higher than that because I don't it, I watched the match and it wasn't really played out like an exhibition match. Neither was the Dan Evans one. You can always tell the real exhibition match are the ones where whoever wins the first set pretend always loses the second set and then they kind of play a bit in the third set to see who won. But both the match against Dan Evans and the match against Nadal, you can see that all four of those players were playing to win the matches. And it, it definitely holds more sway than than your than your average exhibition tournament, even, I would say. Um, just in terms of how Murray was playing, definitely playing more aggressive, standing on the baseline and not getting blown away by Nadal, who... I didn't think Nadal looked great, to be honest. Um, and I've thought that for some time now. Um, I'd be surprised if Nadal wins another slam, um, to be perfectly honest. I'd be, I'd be very surprised. Um, and, and other than the French Open, I'd be surprised if he's playing in many more finals. Um, mm. But um, yeah, I thought Murray looked really good and I thought it was as good as you could really have hoped for. I didn't see the final against Rublev. Um I thought, it'd be, I, thought, I thought it might be Rublev, actually. I don't know what, what happened in the final. Maybe run out of steam a bit. But, um, yeah, d- definitely really interested to see how he goes in Australia now. Yeah, the point about Nadal, just to pick up on that before we go back to Murray, I mean, it is very hard to see what surface Nadal's going to win a slam on other than clay now. I mean, I just think guys like Medvedev, Zverev, are playing too high a level on hard courts. He's never had a good record against Djokovic on hard courts for about said never like last eight years hasn't beaten him at a slam on a hard court you know that's three very big obstacles you do incredibly well to avoid all of them and you'd still if team came back fancy him Sissipas beat him in five at last year's Australian Open there's a quite a growing list of guys who beat him on a hard court and he, he doesn't make the grass court season he just doesn't play that often enough he's still a good grass court player and you know, 2018 was probably the last time he had a proper run at that. Um, and, you know, he lost a five-setter to Djokovic in the final uh, semi-finals, which was a brilliant, brilliant match. He can bring the level there, but it's rare for him to really exert himself on the grass and even turn up now. So, hmm. yeah, I'm kind of with Calvin. I, I, I wouldn't say I'd sit here confidently and rule Nadal out of winning another French Open because that's proven quite a bad pre- prediction in the past. <laughs> um and it will depend on Djokovic and team and even Zverev perhaps and Tsitsipas and what level they can reach. But I, I'd be with Calvin. I'd be surprised if he wins another hardcourt slam now. I think it's interesting when you, I was looking at this the other day and you look at Nadal's hardcourt record, like over the last, say, two years. And if you look at his hardcourt record basically against other top 10 players, and he's actually pretty mediocre. Like, for a guy who, all right, he was never dominant. And obviously, as you say, George, that matchup with Djokovic has turned against him. But I think of his last eight matches against other top 10 players on hard court, he's lost six. And he, he beat, like, 
he beat Rublev and Tsitsipas at the tour finals in last year. And that's pretty much it. And that's like, that's pretty damning, I think, because they're the matches, you know, most of the tour is played on hardcore, indoor or outdoor. Um, the top 10 of the guys you're going to have to beat to get to, as you say, finals and semifinals. It's not really the same as the WTA where a draw can just open up out of nowhere and Rafa Nadal's good enough to pick off guys from 15 to 50 and and get to a final. Um, He's going to have to beat at least one or two of Medvedev team, Tsitsipas, those kind of people to get to a final. And he doesn't look like he's able to do it. I think his last like really significant hardcore win, which I was at, was the US Open final win over Medvedev. And that, you know, that almost felt like a bit of a turning point of a match because he was kind of in control. You still had this sense of the next gen being so far behind Rafa Novak and even Roger to a degree at that stage um, in terms of slams. And you just felt Medvedev kind of realised at that point, I can get back in against this guy. There's a window here. I can beat him. And although he lost that match, I felt that was quite a significant match to kind of give people a lot of hope in the next gen of taking out Rafa on a hard court. And then you had the Sissipas one where it was a similar situation where Nadal was two sets up. Sissipas has pulled his way back from two sets down, but this time gone on and won. I think now Nadal would do well to get two sets up against these guys. I really do. I think I'd be backing those guys to beat him in four sets nine times out of ten now on a hard court easily, really. He's had such a strange career on hard courts. Not a strange career. He's had a brilliant career on hard courts. For honest, he's won five slams on hard courts. But like when you dig dig a little bit deeper into it, like the U.S. Open, which for a long time people forget this now. For a long time, people thought that that his U.S. Open was his bogey tournament, but he's won four of them. But the last two, like the one where he beat Medvedev in the final, I'm not sure he beat anybody who'd ever. I don't think he'd beat anybody who'd never ever won a slam before. And then at the time, Medvedev then wasn't what Medvedev is now. And I think he beat Berrettini in the semi-final, who was definitely not Berrettini, who he played now. And then the one he won before that, which is one I bang on about all the time, is the only person ever to have won a slam without beating anybody in the top 25 in the world. Um, with a caveat that he beat Del Potro at the time, was ranked outside it, but was obviously a, a very, very good player. Um, mm. But he became he kind of became very good at winning hardcore slams when Federer and Djokovic got knocked out by somebody else. Um, <laughs> which um, and then when I guess when Murray wasn't around for some of those as well, like he won the U.S. Open in seventeen and nineteen, which was when Murray was obviously away from the game. Yeah. So what you're saying is he's had a lucky career, Calvin. I get that. Yeah. That's <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. It, no, it's such a strange one, though, isn't it? That he gets labelled as a clay court player as well, though. But he's won, I'm just looking at now, he's won um, seven slams that are not on clay. And if you took away his like French Open titles, he'd still be like top 10 of all time winning slams, I think, something like that. So you can't do and just to defend him a little bit or hard, I mean, I think there's a, there is a bit of recency bias with Nadal's issues on hard. I mean, they have really come beyond kind of 2013, 14 and been a big problem. But he, and, and in saying that, he's still won two US Open since then. But if you look at him in those earlier years, he beat Djokovic in two US Open finals, or at least one. Right. He beat Djokovic in one of them. I mean, that's, that's still an unbelievable level to be kind of be hitting. And there's a tournament back then where he was serving unbelievably through, during that. I mean, he has reached yeah. incredibly high levels. It's just never been that great a service for him 
physically on the body and other guys are just better on it, really. I guess he's also like, he's he's like had match like tournaments where he'd lost like you wouldn't catch Djokovic losing like to Lucas Pui in a mm. in a US Open and people like that. And Nadal's had those tournaments. I mean Dennis Istomin springs to mind, but that's really literally like that's the only one, right? Like that's the only Djokovic sort of boo-boo in early rounds. Did he lose to Hyun Chung Djokovic? Oh, he did lose to Hyun Chung. I was like, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, these are all Djokovic. We don't we don't count that um, that eighteen month period. <laughs> Djokovic it's, like, it's, it's like hugging trees in Hyde Park. We're not we're not. Doing that. <laughs> it was it was an odd one. I mean, Hugh Chung. There's a name I haven't heard in a long time. I mean, I, I made up great that tournament as well. Just to say, I mean, he looked. He just won the next gen finals, hadn't he? Just before yeah. that, um, yeah. and just has had injuries since. But he looked the real deal then. I mean, he was brilliant. I think I, I don't know if I've made this up, but I is he retired? Am I is he retired because of injury? He's, he's only about twenty three. <laughs> he's yeah. really young. Okay, um, I think he has retired. Yeah, serious back injury. Keon Chung is retired. Yeah, I thought I saw this the other day. He he, he yeah, the age of twenty three or something. Yeah. You can imagine one mountain Del Potro just shaking his head at that, like <laughs> after all I've been through and got a bit of back pain and you're retiring at 23. <laughs> 25, I beg your pardon, 25. I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure I wrote an article at the time, like before he played Djokovic, that was headlined, the next Djokovic, question mark? <laughs> they have very similar styles. <laughs> I mean, let, let's face it, George, your record on picking the next goat has not gone well. <laughs> Although it may yet prove to be true. Anyone who remembers the uh, Wimbledon boys final in 2017 between Jack Draper and Sen Chun Sin uh, will know that George picked him out as the GOAT. Uh, he's not had a great career since, but he did win a challenger the other week and he has got a wild card into the Australian Open. So watch this space. Well, on the yeah. same day as Federer. Chung, wasn't it? Who knows? As is Asia earlier seen. Very odd set of birthdays of potential goat contenders. That's who, not interesting, George. Two of them That's... haven't made it. <laughs> if if you're hearing this as a listener, it's because I've forgotten to edit that sort of nonsense out, and I can only apologise. That's my fault, not George's. Uh, let's move on. Um, we talked a little bit about Murray. Um, he is one of the few who's come away from the Mubadala World Tennis Championship without contracting COVID. Uh, first Rafael Nadal, then Belinda Bencic, and Ons Jabeur. Emma Raducanu, of course, missed it because she had already got COVID. Um, Nadal had been a little coy about playing Australia. Uh, He's now kind of even more coy because obviously this is going to interrupt his preparations. And from the evidence of Abu Dhabi, uh, not in great shape as it is. Uh, Would it be a great blow? I mean, it would be a great blow to the tournament, I suppose, George, if, if Nadal wasn't in Australia. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, it's still a blow to any event to not have these guys there. I mean, they're massive um, public figures who draw in the crowds. And, you know, you have to think that these guys, no one knows how many tournaments they've got left in them. So I, that, in many ways, brings the ticket price higher. Um, so, yeah, I think it'd be a massive miss. And we still, you know, we've spoken time and time again against this. But we don't know if Novak is going to go. I mean, that's just the ultimate Cluedo mystery at the minute, um, whether Novak's going to get to Australia with the candlestick or whatever. Um, 
Sorry, what's the candlestick got to do with it? Um, the Cluedo gag. I'm sure people at home really love that, but it <laughs> didn't land in the room. <laughs> I was trying to I'll blame, I'll blame COVID brain fog. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, you've got Serena definitely out, Roger definitely out. It, it, it does still have a little bit of an impact in terms of selling it. Um, I know he's gone down with COVID as well. But he was still very coy before that, so yeah, I don't get why he wouldn't go. To be honest, if if he's fit, well, so that's the big if, isn't it? Like you know, from how he looked in Abu Dhabi, um, clearly he's he's not played competitively since Washington, whenever that was this year. Um, So you know, he's clearly very short of match fitness. Yeah, we don't know how how much his recovery, you know, what stage of his recovery we're at. Yeah, I mean, I I always. Think if you're starting to play matches now in December, there's no real harm to go and play a couple of. You, you've got three weeks, doesn't he? Really? I mean, you could go and play a couple of. That's how you get match fitness is by playing the matches, isn't it? I mean, but then I it know. also like it also depends like if he's vaccinated because not not for getting into Australia, but if he's had a vaccine recently and has now got COVID, you know that might not have been have taken effect yet, and so. We don't know the physical impact of him getting COVID. You know, it does affect Grigor Dimitrov. Obviously, he got it before vaccines were a thing. But he talked a lot about how getting COVID affected him physically for, for weeks and maybe even months. Um, and I think everyone can kind of, you know, everyone who's had it before the vaccine became a thing can testify to the fact that it does kind of blows you away a bit. Um, I know you're no athlete, George, but, you know. Well, yeah, I was not, I mean... I struggled with like breathing stuff for like three months after I'd go mm. and run it and take me like an hour to get like what felt just like gunk off my chest. Um, but this time I feel well, nothing. Yeah. Which is somewhat frustrating. <laughs> Stop being frustrated about not being ill. Honestly, I know what you mean. <laughs> me like... ill. If you want to cancel my Christmas, make me ill. God damn it. That's all I have for. <laughs> just so you can have a couple of days off work. I mean, you could just tell them you're ill. You have tested positive. <laughs> It's more the uh, it's more the principle. I'd rather right. be locked in if I'm actually ill than hell of a hill to die on that, George. Yeah, hell of a hill to I'm die. I'm gonna die on it though. I'm gonna die on it. <laughs> um Calvin, an Australian open without Serena, Roger, Rafa, is it is it the same? Or is this just the reality we're gonna have to get used to now? Um it won't be any different. I don't think I'd even register it now. There's been a while, hasn't it, since they've they've all played. So yeah, I mean they didn't play um they didn't play the U.S. Open today. Federer. The U.S. was football. the U.S. was the first like slam without all of them for something stupid like seventeen like eight or something. Ridiculous. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was since yeah, before Serena started. It was, but, but Wimbledon, Wimbledon, um, Serena had her injury early, so that's right. that wasn't relevant. Nadal wasn't there, and Federer had it. Federer made the quarters. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but. Um, and then US Open, sorry, French Open, Nadal played, Serena didn't, and Serena didn't. So, yeah. you know, it's to be honest, it's been a while since any of them were threats at anything outside of the French, hasn't it? So, I think um, for most people, and I, and you know, I hesitate to use the word casual fans, it's, it's used in a sneering way in boxing. Um, but they're more than welcome, obviously. But I think for casual fans, like people who watch tennis once a year and in the countries where these slams happen, they, there are a lot of them. They might go, oh, why isn't Roger playing this year? Why isn't Rafa playing this year? But I think 
the large majority of everyone else goes, well, we know why. I, I think as well on top of that, though, I, th- I think you've, 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 you're right there, James, in the, but I think it's Federer, really. So both Serena and Nadal have missed a lot of slams in mm-hmm. their careers. So I think it, it's, there's nothing new, even, even, at their pri- even in their prime. I think, you know, Nadal, I saw something the other day that Nadal's missed more slams than Murray, Federer and Djokovic combined in his career. So, and, and, and recently Serena started missing them. So having, not having those two at a slam um, isn't, isn't strange. And over the last two years, not having Federer at a slam isn't strange either. So I, I just think it's, it's kind of moved on now. I mean, for, for this one, the most significant one would obviously be Novak if he doesn't turn up. I mean, he's dominated in Australia, whether you think he's the most popular one there or not. I mean, this is the guy they're expecting to lift the trophy every year at the minute. Um, be an astonishing story that goes beyond just tennis if he doesn't turn up. Yeah, yeah, it almost might be a bigger story. Um, just to kind of recount the others who pulled out so far, uh, as you mentioned, no Federer, no Stan Wawrinka, um, no Jennifer Brady. She's got a foot injury, obviously made it to the final last year. Bianca Andreescu has taken time out. We've kind of discussed exactly why, although it's still not clear. And then the two Carolinas, Makova and um, Pliskova, both out as well. So, I mean, already the, the women's tour taking a little bit of a blow. George, you're shaking your head. Shaking my head. I, I like Makova as a fantasy pick, I was just thinking there. She's always quite a useful one in the uh, 16 to 32 bracket. I think she was yeah. semis last year, wasn't she? Going to have to work a bit harder for your money this year. Head on then. Actually, have to, might have to think about it a bit, not going for her. Yeah, that I mean, that is always is the most interesting bracket. I'm just looking at it now, and I think I know who I'm picking because Emma Raducanu will probably be in that bracket. Although she might... If I'm back here now. I don't know. I'm in such a weird place with Raducanu now. I don't know how I feel. Like, I could see her losing first round as easily as semis. She is, of course, the new reigning um, BBC Sports Personality of the Year, which is the only award that anyone on this podcast really cares about, I know, and I'm not <laughs> taking debate on that point. Um, she uh, was up against Adam Peaty uh, and Tom Daly, who finished third and second, respectively. Um, she wasn't in Salford, as almost no one was, um, for the uh, the event. She won the trophy. She was given the trophy by, presumably, her agent uh, out in Abu Dhabi and did... Um, not a bad little exception speech, you know, for, for Emma Raducanu, who we've become used to lots of speeches that start with, hi, it's Emma, and sort of go along the same way. But that's what happens when you win lots of awards. Um, I, I don't want to bang on about sports personality too much because I know you both hate it. But um, <laughs> maybe you could use it as an opportunity to, uh, to point out quite how penetrative her run has been, like into the public consciousness in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I saw a few annoying tweets as comes around with this award where people were asking, what odds would you get if you'd have predicted Emma Raducanu to be Sport Personality of the Year at the start of 2021? Well, you, no one would have had odds on that, you maniac. Like, it is a mental story. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is mad. Like, it is genuinely great. And you're right. While I don't consider it a particularly significant award, I do think it is one that can, again, also slightly hate this term, cut through in terms of to get into that position, you have to be a fairly well-known British sporting figure in a sport that is fairly prominent. Um, Actually, the last exception I can think to that rule was probably Zara Phillips, but she still is kind of very linked to Royals in terms of um, being a kind of strong sport, etc. 
so yeah, I mean, look, it, it's, it, it's still an amazing achievement. I suppose it's another chance to celebrate what is going to be one of, look back on one of the most weird sporting wins of all time, potentially. Um, just coming through qualifying, going to a grand, win a Grand Slam after we've had a pretty good British woman have quite a few cracks, falling over the last hurdle, as we spoke about with Conta on her retirement recently. And then for just this next British phenomenon, just to walk in, win three more matches than anyone else has ever won in a slam and just eat everyone for dinner. I mean, it's amazing. Yes. I mean, it should be noted that, you know, you mentioned how big it is for tennis to make it through. Only seven times has a tennis player won the award. Three of those times was Andy Murray. Would anyone care to have a guess at the other the others? Brzezinski won it. He won it, didn't he? Brzezinski won it. Won when he came. 1997, he beat Tim Henry. Virginia Wade won it in 1977. And then you had to go back another eight years to find. What? I was going to say, oh, eight years. Oh, God. I was going to say Sue Barker might have won it when she won the French. but No one knew Sue Barker won the French. Like it was, it was basically a secret. It wasn't on TV. She, she like, she lost her medal. Like it was. I could talk about the trophy. That's yeah. Wrong nationality, wasn't it? Wrong nationality. Australian. I could talk about the Sue Barker French Open win all day because it's just the weirdest thing that ever happened, and people always forget about it. But the other tennis player to win, Anne Jones in 1969, she beat Tony Jacklin and George Best. Which I think, frankly, if the prize had been based on personality, which it's not, um, then, uh, I mean, George Best would just win it every year, so it probably wouldn't be very fair. What's um, the year where the personality actually did win the, the, the prize? What there do you mean? The year where, as in, who on the list is the person with the most personality? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, oh, everyone really likes Joe Calzaghe. Like, he was obviously very successful, but everyone always really liked him as a bloke. Like, he was the gentleman boxer. Like, people sort of got on with him. So I would maybe say him. I mean, I'm looking back. There have been some really boring people to win this award. Like, Damon Hill, Michael Owen, Johnny Wilkinson, Pui Paula Radcliffe. You know, oh, I tell you what, I'll tell you. The <laughs> The answer, the answer you're looking for, George, is Paul Gaskell in 1990. Yeah, that's a good answer. I'm just thinking there, Anne Jones won it in 1969 over George Best. That was absolute peak George Best. And probably, <laughs> like the best footballer in the world at the time and probably one of the top five footballers of all time. And like Anne Jones won the BBC Sports Personality of the Year Award. Could, couldn't even beat Tony Jacklin to second. <laughs> 15 now, Calvin is, of course, calling us from the NTC, one of the particularly attractive prison cells that they put him in. I'm told that there are actually some really nice rooms at the NTC, but they put Calvin in these prison cells just because. I mean, he's now showing it to us, and it's, yeah, that is a concrete wall. That is quite something. Um, but it, it, this is not COVID related, although um, obviously there's lots of COVID related stuff going on at the NTC, Calvin. Um, I mean, tell us a bit about what it's like in there at the moment. With so many players training for the Australian Open there, I imagine everyone's a little bit on edge. Yeah, it's um, it's a strange atmosphere. A lot of the players are a bit concerned. It's quite a big thing for them, not not even really from a health point of view. It's from more of a point of view, if they test positive now, that there's a lot of money at stake um, if they're going to Australia. 
Um, there's about, I guess, first round prize money is about fifty fifty five thousand pounds. Um, and then if you're getting a bit of doubles as well, that's a bit on top of that. And then there's the tournament before that at Melbourne that most of them will play. You're probably looking at about seventy thousand pound, even if you don't win a match. And most of them are intended on going and winning a match, so um, or or winning quite a few in, in I guess some of the players' cases. So um, yeah, it's it's been a bit bit of a strange, strange atmosphere, and the protocols have changed today. Um, I was here all last week. Protocols have changed today, so now the Australian Open players train on the morning, and the players who aren't going to the Australian Open train on the afternoon, and they don't cross paths. The coaches are not allowed to cross with each with different players from different groups that kind of thing um testing every day for everyone in the building um that type of thing and then there's a few uh, silly rules as well that i don't really think make any difference like uh, players are not allowed to change ends um which <laughs> I, I i don't really get on, on a singles court there's no real doubles being practiced um not on the afternoons anyway um i don't get why um, why you wouldn't change ends, being that you're passing the same balls to each other anyway. So. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's a really interesting one now. I, I think the, without moving f- too far away from the restrictions in the National Tennis Centre, I mean, it, it must be a pretty nervous time for them all to be jumping on commercial flights to get over to Australia again. I mean, that was obviously such a big issue last year. I mean, there's only... It's all very well. I know Murray's this week said he's not going to train at the NTC because he knows it's been a couple of cases and doesn't want to kind of risk that. But it's impossible to eliminate the risk, isn't it? And just sitting on a big plane for, you know, 24 hours almost is... Yeah, I find that strange because in normal circumstances, I kind of think it make more sense. But there's there's really not many people here. It, it's, it's pretty sparse. Um, and mm. you could, if you wanted to, if... If you wanted to, you could walk onto the court um, and to your side of the court and not come within 20 metres of another person. Um, it, it's feasible to do that, being that there's there's hardly anyone here. The canteen is, you're not allowed to eat in the canteen now, um, that type of thing. So at, I think that there's a there's a there's an area to be found between being as safe as you possibly can and going a bit overboard with it and you know it's up to him if he wants to go and train elsewhere that's perfectly fine it's not you know it doesn't affect anything I'm sure he get better you know you get as, as good practice anywhere else but I think suggesting that you can't train here because it's too much of a risk I I don't really understand that mm. um, one of the other upshots for British tennis of the latest surge is that the Battle of the Brits as you mentioned George is off um, it was supposed to be up in Aberdeen, obviously, uh, in the next couple of days. Uh, I actually wasn't going to travel anyway, but um, I'm now not allowed to leave the house. So maybe <laughs> saves me a trip to Aberdeen. But um, nevertheless, uh, I mean, is it is it a big blow? I, I don't love these events. I think they're a bit twee, but it seemed like it was, you know, people were getting on board with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a blow in terms of it'd be nice for people in Scotland to see the Murrays play up there. And, you know, we've spoken a lot about kind of the Davis Cup and what a shame that is that, you know, we don't have this opportunity to bring international tennis and our top players to play somewhere outside of Wimbledon. Um, Particularly now the ATP finals has gone as well. So from that perspective, yeah, I think so. In terms of 
is anyone going to be, uh, you know, you, we talked about the casual sports fans earlier, are people going to be gassed that the Battle of the Brits is off? Probably not. Um, you know, I can speak personally that I'd be much happier if the Premier League stayed on the Battle of the Brits right now because that is getting me through this isolation at the minute. And I'll be <laughs> switching to the EFL Cup once we're finished here, uh, which is, you know, the dregs of what I would watch normally, but yeah, desperate times. Um <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, it's kind of two sides, I guess, but it's always good to have tennis events going on in the UK, regardless of how big or small they are. You never know who that's going to inspire to be involved. And when you can bring a big name like Andy Murray up there still against other British guys who are, you know, Norwich just outside the top 10 now, it's a great way to raise his profile in tandem with someone who everyone knows. Um, I do think it's still a shame when that sort of thing does get called off. Mm. Um, I, I suppose the reason I ask is because it, it would have been what we were talking about probably this week and a chance for us to get a bit more of a, a gauge on, on the fitness of, of those various players. I mean, Calvin, I assume you think it's mostly a nonsense. Um, not mostly, absolutely a nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> the only people that care about it, are, I mean, look, it's nice for people in Scotland, they get to watch Andy Murray play. Um, so I appreciate that. In terms of playing, the only people who care about it are the people who are playing in it, like the last Battle of the Brits, who everyone who played in it seemed to think it was a much bigger thing than what it actually was to anybody who wasn't playing in it. So, yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how that happens with people actually there. I was going to say, anecdotally, there was quite a humorous um, period straight after, because after the first one, where it obviously had been a massive lockdown and they'd put on this big Battle of the Brits event. And I remember a few press conferences um, leading into events that followed that after the resumption of the tour. Like, do you think you'll have an advantage because of the Battle of the Brits? You know, you guys got to play high-level tennis while everyone else was locked out. Everyone just lost all the time. And then it was just <laughs> like, it's like, let's throw that script out the window. <laughs> that is, has not helped them. Yeah. Um, one last thing for this week. We, if you remember at the beginning of the year, tried to do some quite bold predicting where all three of us predicted all four Grand Slams and we also picked two young players um, to have success in 2021. Uh, Inevitably, this was difficult. Inevitably, I picked differentially and inevitably I did badly. Um, (laughs) If we go through this chronologically, um, there's the Australian Open where Calvin picked both winners for two points. George, you picked Halep which was a mistake, obviously. And I picked Barty, which looked like a good idea. Um, French Open, we all picked Nadal, which obviously went badly. Um, You picked Kiki Burton's, George, which I thought was pretty bold. Um, And then you changed your mind and picked Andreas. (laughs) Can I just have a caveat there that although I picked Nadal, um, when it got to the final, I picked Djokovic to beat him. Okay, so there's no points for that. I'm not giving you any points. It comes to a tiebreaker. (laughs) Calvin. Also, Calvin, you and I both picked Djokovic four months earlier in the, the previous French Open. Yeah. So we, we were backing him within a six-month period correctly. We knew right. it was Kevin. No, absolutely not. That's one of the worst pieces of wriggling I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> I picked Halep to win the French Open. So obviously, she didn't even she wasn't fit. Calvin had Barty. Uh, George, you actually picked three women to pick, win the French Open. Burton's, Muguruza and Andreescu. So congrats on that. I think they had about two match wins between them. Um, Wimbledon, you I did. Pick, but... got to the third round. Yeah, 
that's your two match wins. Um, you picked both winners at Wimbledon. Well done. I picked none. Calvin picked one. Um, and then the US Open, you both picked Medvedev and I didn't. And none of us got the women, obviously. Uh, so basically what we've got here is a tie between... Well, I'm tied for third place with myself. Um, and then George and Calvin tie for first place on four points. So the only fair way to do it is to tie break it on the on the young players, um, which is a very intriguing set of results and that Calvin don't look so angry. So you may remember the, the criteria here is to pick a young player and you're looking for percentage increase on their ranking. So George picked Leila Annie Fernandez. 88. That's quite a good pick, wasn't it, yeah, you know what? I'll give you some credit. It's a good pick. 73% increase. Calvin picked Anastasia. Imagine if won the title. Yeah. Calvin picked Anastasia Potapova. 101 to 69%, 31% increase. I picked Clara Borrell. 236 in the world to 76 in the world. And I still lose to Annie Fernandez. Doesn't seem fair, but by five percentage points. Uh, which means it all comes down to the men. Calvin needs to pull it back with his pick of Yannick Sinner, who went 36 to 10 for a 72% increase, which is pretty good. I went to Sebastian Corder, 119 to 41, 65% increase. So it all comes down to George, Lorenzo Mazzetti, 129 to 59 in the world for a 54% increase which means that Calvin does indeed take it. The problem is that you both had a first and a third. So we're t- it's all tied. 2021 is a tie. Sorry. Who won the fantasy over the four events? That should be the tiebreaker. That's a great question. And more on that later. That can break in next week. That'll be your, your tiebreaker next week. Um, I think that's probably all the business I have for this evening. Um, unless, George, you have any other business. I mean, I suppose we should talk about um, Peng Shui, although I, I don't know if everyone has seen the video. Um, I mean, I, I don't know whether you need to see the video, to be perfectly honest, um, but it's worth mentioning that um, a video came out this week of Peng Shui sort of being interviewed in, in what looked like a sort of slightly odd manner. Um, uh, someone ran up to her with a phone and claiming to be from a Singaporean newspaper um and asked her a few questions and she essentially sort of withdrew all her allegations she said there'd been a lot of misunderstandings um she'd never said or written that anyone sexually assaulted me she said why would anyone monitor me when asked if she was being um controlled or anything like that she said i've always been very free um the interview was done by a a, a title called lian lian jie Zhaobao, i believe uh, it's read in mainland china it's is pretty well known for being pro Beijing and pro CCP. Um, I I don't think there's anything more to say necessarily, other than you can see what this is. I think we can all see what this is. Um, it's increasingly difficult to see a solution. What will matter is that people keep talking about it and people keep noticing it and seeing it for what it is, which is CCP propaganda most of the time. Um, I've been called lots of names on Twitter this week by people who have a vested interest in China being a success or who's who are clearly biased towards China in some way. People claiming I'm anti-China in some way. 
I'm not, for the record. I'm not anti-China or anti-Chinese people. I'm anti the CCP, which, um, given their record on things like human rights, is probably not that unreasonable. Um, George, do you have anything else you wanted to add? I think we covered most things. I, I may have forgotten. Did we mention Team out earlier? He had quite a long statement, didn't he, about... That's a very good point. Um, the Australian Open. We should really start calling like the last couple of minutes of the podcast team te- team time, time for team, um, because I do always forget, not necessarily that he exists, but I often forget that he's done something that week. Yeah, he's pulled out the ATP Cup. Um, as you say, it was a pretty long statement. Um, he was supposed to play Mubadali, pulled out that. Um, he said he got a cold while in Dubai, so he wasn't able to practice and therefore would, quote, not be in physical condition, required to be able to play the ATP Cup and Sydney 250. Um, after not competing for the last six months, I can't take the risk of coming back too soon and picking up a further injury. Um, over the time I spent in Dubai, it's great as I increased the intensity and level of my practice. My wrist is almost 100%. My aim is to play the Australian Open, but we'll make a final decision about my participation by the end of December. Um, Calvin, just quickly... Um, I mean, to not play for six months and then to not play any warm-up tournaments and go straight into the Australian Open, even without knowing quite how fit Dominic team is or isn't, that seems pretty unlikely, doesn't it? Um, yeah, it's definitely unlikely that he could perform at any sort of level, I would say. Um, the only player who tends to ever be able to do that is Nadal, um, who comes back from three-month injuries regularly and immediately starts winning slams. Um but, um, um, yeah, my feeling is he probably won't play it. You never know with players because their mentality is they'll always try and play it and they'll always think they've got a chance. Um, and it, 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 there's a chance he probably might be fit, but just match fitness, he'll just be way off the mark on it. You can't, it's the one thing you can't replicate. And I think that that is important to say is that no matter how much training you get in, however good your training camp is, without playing actual matches, you'll always be off the mark. I mean, George, is there any point then in him playing? And let's say he makes the third round and then loses a match that he would have won a year later. I was going to add that I think team as a player is very much a player who really needs to find his rhythm as well. Like he feels to me like someone who can lose first round if he gets very similar to Vavrinka, actually, in that sense, that I could see him losing first round to almost anyone, really, at any tournament, probably the French aside. He, he's always vulnerable in the early matches while he finds his range. But if he grows into a tournament, he can be, you know, he can beat anyone. He's that sort of dangerous. But I, I also think that kind of applies for how he needs to build up before tournaments as well. So I'd be surprised to see him turn up to the Australian Open without playing a single warm-up event and doing anything beyond the fourth round. Um, I'd be pretty astonished, to be honest. Mm. Is there anything to gain? Yes, I think I still always answer. If you can go and play matches, that's a positive thing. And a fourth round run for team would be a pretty good result given where he's been. Um, Also, just in general kind of rankings terms, it's always good to kind of keep... I know he didn't have masses of ranking points last year, but... It's always good to kind of keep keep pushing on. So, yeah, I think there's something to gain, but maybe not that much from this one. Maybe better to hit the indoor hards, Europe, and then all the South American clay. Um, just slightly off topic, is, is um, Del Potro playing uh, Australian Open or not? I've seen he'd entered uh, the tournament in Brazil um, not long after it. but I mean, is, is he, he's going to need a wild card, isn't he? 
Um, so he's not he's not got a wild card yet. I know that. Um, he's in a protected ranking. That's a good question. I don't think he is. I don't. Maybe know. not. Maybe he's not. Um, I, I haven't seen him on the entry list. That's for sure. Uh, I have to try and access darts rankings, which is <laughs> incredibly. That's where the best player lists are. Quite bizarrely. Um, I don't think he's entered, but looks things. Um, but I mean, I like you, Calvin. I'm just as excited for the prospect of Juan Martín Del Potro playing Grand Slam, and no doubt that when it does happen again, we will do a whole podcast on it. It, it I mean, you know, we, if he plays, if he can get back to sort of fitness, and I think there's a fair chance he can if he, if the knee injury has recovered, he, he will be competitive in the slams this year because he was last time when he came back from injury, um, mm. and. You've got to imagine that that everybody who, who used to trouble him before is not the force that they were. Like Djokovic, Djokovic and Nadal, who he's beaten at, at, at slams before, they're not the force they were, and I'd still favour him. Look, if it comes down to, if he plays Tsitsipas or Zverev in a final and he's fully fit, I favour Del Potro to beat either of those two. Hmm. Um, in the interest of fact, uh, he's hoping to make his return at the Argentina Open in Buenos Aires in February uh, and potentially the Rio Open uh, the couple of weeks after that as well. Uh, he's obviously not played in two and a half years. Uh, his last statement, he said, I've been training really hard. Some days are better than others, but always with the hope of coming back to compete. I mean, it is pretty amazing. Like, I think, I don't I don't know anyone who doesn't want Juan Martín to come back. And if he could come back and play at a competitive level, it would be pretty spectacular. And And like you say, Calvin, he could potentially compete at a very high level. And it would add, George, you were saying earlier about the lack of rivalries and lack of spice. It would definitely add something different, wouldn't it? Yeah, I mean, he's just a very unique player. In terms of, he literally whacks it so hard it's beyond belief. I mean, it's <laughs> one of the most remarkable shots you can see in the flesh. It's his forehand. I mean, I'm, I don't know how he generates that much power on it. It's bonkers. Um, but, I, yeah, I mean, I would love it if he came back. He's... I think he's a brilliant player. He's a really nice guy. He's good for the tour. And he, his matches are always really good because of how big a weapon that forehand is. It makes it a really interesting strategic battle that if you put anything that's not good into the forehand side, he can literally twat it and win a winner from anywhere. Um, which there aren't enough players like that now on the ATP tour who can do that to hurt someone like Novak. Um, that said... I still really, really struggle to see him getting into a position to reach a Grand Slam final now. And I I actually disagree with Calvin. I think now the level Medvedev's at, Zverev's at, I think those two beat him pretty regularly. Um, I, I don't think he actually said Medvedev before, but uh, Zverev I'd also have higher. I think Zverev's playing really, really good tennis and it's going to, it's going to be very, very tough. More, I say that more as, more as mentality thing. There's still big questions to be asked about Zverev in the slums. Oh, yeah, yeah. Mentality-wise. Yeah. And... And I, th- I think that that would make the balance up. It'd be a great match, I think. But um, he's done the thing. What encourages me about it? He's done it before. I mean, he's the injury that he had before. He really shouldn't have come back from. He didn't have a backhand. He came back without his backhand was a good backhand. Like he, he could he could drill winners off that. But he's got he's also got a huge serve as well as the forehand. But he had this huge backhand. Then he came back without the backhand and still made Olympic uh, Olympic final. And two year a US Open final, US Open semi final. It was phenomenal. And so now it makes me think that 
there's another factor in it as well is that I don't, and this is me speculating, I don't know, but with, with sort of two years rest, I don't know, he might come back with a 200 backhand. Well, it's interesting you say that because actually the last time he came back, he was bringing out that 200 a little bit more. Like he yeah. was playing and it was, it was quite an interesting thought because the, the 100 slice had actually got so good as a neutralizing shot because he just had to play it every single time that it become a really good reset um, button, if you like. But he was starting to come over the two-hander again. And as Calvin said, that used to be a really, really good shot. If he could somehow marry those two in perfect harmony, where he can take the sting out of everything with that slice and still land it quite deep, and also attack off that backhand side to keep them guessing, and leave anything coming to his forehand that he's going to whack for a winner, that's a pretty great combo. Um, but I, I'm unfortunately not convinced he'll get the run of fitness he needs at this stage. But I hope I'm wrong because he's one of the most fun players to watch on the tour. That is all we've got time for, I think. Um, and we could talk about Juan Martino Potter all night, let's face it. Um, as always, thank you very much for listening. Uh, do give us a follow on Twitter if you're not already at Love Tennis Pod. Um, you'll be able to see all the latest polls that I endlessly do on there. Um, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts as well. It makes a massive difference. And thanks very much for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.